Hello, parishioners. My name is Kevin Callahan, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. I'd like to let you all know about our SOMA Intensive Discipleship School. SOMA stands for the School of Missional Apprenticeship. It's our nine-month seminary for everybody, where students of all ages come together to experience spiritual formation, theological and ministry equipping, and urban missional service, all in a context of discipleship community. Students from this past year's class said that their SOMA experience deeply impacted their life and helped them understand their faith better, and a number have chosen to stay on for further equipping with us at Woodland. We're taking applications for this coming fall right now, and the program runs from September through May. To find out more, go to whchurch.org SOMA, S-O-M-A. We look forward to hearing from you, and thank you very much. On the day I was born, they handed me to my father and they said, you have a son. What shall we call him? And he remembered what the angel had said. His name is John. So they called me John. John the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they also called me a joy and a delight. The spirit was strong in me and I moved on, praying and preaching into the deserts of Judea. It was there that people called me John the baptizer. They called me a prophet. They called me a voice in the wilderness. But on windy nights, my heart was steadied by what I was called first. John, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. John, a joy and delight. On the day my cousin was born, they remembered what the angel had said. His name is Jesus, and he will be called Son of the Most High. So they called him Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, and they called him Jesus, the son of the Most High. The Spirit was strong in him, and one day he came to me to be baptized. I didn't understand that part, but when he came up out of the water, there was a voice that said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then he went into the wilderness, and I suddenly understood. Because in the wilderness, whether they call you a prophet or a madman, your heart is steadied by what you are called first. Jesus, Son of the Most High. Jesus, beloved of God, only begotten of the Father, delight of the Almighty. Good morning. So this morning at the first service, there were some young ladies over by the exit sign dancing during worship. And then during the second service, there was a young man riding around on a dirt bike. I just, I love this church. Isn't that great? My, my name is Dan Kent. Uh, I, uh, but before I start, I have a little confession I have to make. Um, I, I have a long history of believing some kind of strange things. Uh, and it started really young. And I, I don't know, like even before I was in elementary school, just a little blonde puffball, um, I somehow got it into my head that everybody in the world, except for mom, <laughs> everybody else in the world were hideous monsters. And um, I mean, I'm like just really hideous monsters with the slimy flesh and the scraggly teeth and the throbbing eyeball and all of that. Just hideous, you know? Not when I was looking at them. When I was looking at them, they're fine. They're just normal people. But as soon as I turned away, bleh, 
They would turn back into monsters. And so for a good while, as a little kid, I would try to catch them. And so, uh, like at the grocery store or the laundromat, I would sense them behind me, and I would go, ha-ha, like that. And then they would go, oh, what's wrong with this child? And, and I couldn't say anything because I didn't want them to know that I was on to them. And, and, uh, uh, and sometimes I got really good at it. I would try to catch the people in front of me where I would go, ha-ha, ha-ha, like that. And uh, I still didn't ever... I, th- I came close once. This lady in the butcher shop, she was like sniffing meat or something. I don't remember what, but I swear I caught a glimpse of her still as a monster. Um, but I was a little boy at the time, and now I'm a rational, reasonable adult who no longer has these strange beliefs, um, or maybe I do actually. Uh, <clears throat> I, I, I was forced to come to terms with a belief that is, uh, I think, kind of strange, I believe in an invisible person, probably a male, who is trying to make my life miserable and destroy everything good in my life. (laughs) Uh, The Bible calls him Satan. And um, I've had to ask myself, uh, because I'm doing this this sermon on the confrontation between Jesus and Satan in the wilderness, and so I need to know, do I really believe this? Do I really believe in this Satan character? That's a strange belief. Um, But... Yeah, I, I, I do. <laughs> and it's largely Greg Boyd's fault. Let me just say that right now. It's largely Greg Boyd's fault. Uh, but, you know, I wish I didn't believe it, to be honest, because it's not the type of belief that when I go to a party, I'm like, hey, I believe in Satan. I'm Dan. Nice to meet you. You know, in fact, um, I try to kind of avoid the whole thing when I'm at parties or family functions. Uh, you'll usually find me over by the carrot sticks and the peanut M&Ms. That's kind of where... I'll be and just hope nobody brings up the whole thing. Um, but I do, I, I believe it, and I have a lot of reasons for believing it, and they're so good, the reasons are so good, and they're so compelling, and I wish I had time to share them all, but I don't. Uh, but I will share this, and this is what Greg says, and I think it's the best, quickest defense of, of accepting this idea of Satan, and that is, if we've made Jesus our Lord and our one true teacher, as it says in Matthew 23, then it doesn't make sense for me to challenge his teaching, it doesn't make sense for me to challenge his theology, and this idea of Satan and demons is everywhere in his whole entire story. Every chapter has some type of reference to the demonic or Satan or um, the principalities and powers that Satan sustains. Um, That being said, we all know that society has had a lot of fun with the Satan character and um, has has, uh, made it pretty ridiculous. But I really think that we can respect the reality of this adversary while at the same time rejecting all the silliness that society paints him with. Uh, This is my clever way of saying it. We can... um, Hold on, i got to look at it. We can reject... Yeah, this is it. We can reject the caricature while we take serious the character of Satan. Um, And that's what I hope to do in in this sermon. Um, I'm looking at uh, the the gospel, and you find the story in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they all put the story right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so there's something about this confrontation that serves as a prerequisite for what Jesus is trying to do in the world. He has to do this first, and then, then he can start his ministry. 
We're in the middle of a series called Long Story Short, where we're looking at all of the stories of the Bible and how they kind of weave together around this theme of covenant and kingdom. And uh, out of all three synoptics, Matthew does the best job of connecting the story to the Bible as a whole. So I'm going to look at Matthew in in this sermon. In particular, I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 11. And I know some of you have already turned to that. I see lots of Bibles opening. I don't actually, but (laughs) let's just pretend like we all have our Bibles open. Uh, You're probably going to realize that, wait a minute, this isn't about the temptation story. This is the baptism story. And that's right, because the way that Matthew tells the story about the temptation in the wilderness, he ties it immediately to uh, and intimately to this baptism story. You can't really understand one without the other. So we're going to end up kind of looking at both of those. Bird's eye view, because we're going to go through it a couple times. But bird's eye view, what happens is Jesus is kind of silent for the first couple chapters. There's just kind of talk about Jesus. But he's just kind of doing his carpenter thing, building docks and outhouses and sanding oars and things like that, I'm assuming. And then all of a sudden, it's time. It's time to start my ministry. So he goes to John the Baptist and gets baptized. And then he's ushered off into the wilderness to face Satan where he's tempted with three temptations. And then he is faithful through that. And then he starts his ministry. That's kind of the bird's eye view. Baptism, temptation, ministry. Now, on a more intimate level... I think what you have to see is this baptism is the beginning of the good news. The the gospel is called the good news and it all starts with the baptism. And we're going to kind of unpack why that is in just a little bit. But you have to also understand the bad situation that makes the news so good. And the Israelites for so long had been living, I mean hundreds of years since the prophets, but they have been waiting for something from God. They haven't heard from God in a long time and um, they're kind of living in the shadows and the bones of all these broken covenants and all these grandiose visions that have come to nothing and all of these great Israelite leaders that have these amazing stories, Adam and Eve, Noah, Moses, Abraham, David, Isaac, all of these great people that used to inspire after hundreds of years of being under Rome's thumb, they're just not inspiring anymore. They all failed. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And what we find in the Gospels is Jesus is going to reanimate the bones of all of these old covenants. And he is going to usher in the fulfillment of all these fantastic visions and these grandiose promises. He is going to usher those in. And not only that, but he's also going to reinvigorate the roles of the Israelite leaders who failed. He is going to be the new Israel. He is going to be the new Adam and Eve. He is going to be the new David. He's going to be the new Moses. He's going to be the new Abraham and the new Isaac. And he's going to do what each of those had this special calling for, but they ultimately failed. Jesus will bring to fulfillment. (sighs) There's a lot of stuff in this. What I'm going to do, oh shoot, I forgot my uh, clicker. Hold on a second. Oh, hey, you guys, I forgot my clicker. So you could do the first slide. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the, the testing story through these three roles. And um, I'm going to do the, the Jesus as the new Israel, Jesus as the new Adam and Eve, and Jesus as the new David. Uh, and boy, I tell you, there's a lot of stuff here. And ultimately what I would like you to take away at the end is I just want you to be wowed by the Bible. Because what we're going to find is that Jesus starts to fulfill all three of these in just this little snippet of text. And it's such a simple text. And yet so much stuff gets accomplished in here. And it's just uh, amazing. I'm telling you, 
this book. <laughs> there are more treasures in this book than there are treasures in the Pokemon universe. <laughs> I've never played Pokemon. I think that makes sense, so we'll go with it. Even in this little short snippet, there are layers upon layers of, of good news and gold nuggets, and um, I, I, hope, I hope to show that. Don't get lost in the details, okay? Don't get lost in the details. Just let all the details of this wash over you. Take what you can take and, um, and, and definitely wrestle with the questions that I pull out. But it's going to come fast, so are you ready? Okay, just text me when you're ready. I'll be right over here. No, I'm just kidding, of course. Uh, uh, if you could just put the first slide up for me, please. The first role that Je- Jesus is going to fulfill, or that I'm going to look at Jesus fulfilling, is Jesus as the new Israel. Now, if you remember, Israel in the Old Testament, God called Israel his son. Um, but unfortunately, his son Israel was unfaithful. Um, and now, Jesus is God's son, and he's going to be the new Israel. But he will be successful. And Matthew, I tell you, really... Uh, emphasizes this point of Jesus being the new Israel in a very indirect way. He starts off by saying, yes, we're going to call him Jesus, but he will be known as Emmanuel. That is God with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. And man, Matthew means it because even how Matthew tells the story of Jesus, it echoes the story of Israel. So in the same way that Israel was called out of Egypt, so too Jesus is called out of Egypt. And just like Israel had to escape through the water in Exodus, so too Jesus passes through the water of baptism. And just like Israel is tested in the wilderness for 40 years, so too Jesus is going to be tested in the wilderness for 40 days. The difference being, of course, that the Israelites failed their tests. (laughs) And Jesus will remain faithful to God through his tests and he will succeed. Um, But even uh, the tests themselves are the same. So if you could do the next slide for me. The tests themselves, the Apostle John says, these are the tests that we face. These are the, the categories of tests that we, oh, thank you so much. Uh, they're the same tests that Jesus experiences in the wilderness, and they're the same tests that the Israelites experience in the wilderness. This confrontation with this lust of the flesh, that is the cravings of being human, that's one of the tests. The other one is this lust of the eyes, or like this desire for certainty and control of beauty and things like that. Uh, And then the third one is a pride of life, or a desire for greatness. And, um, and, And so both Israel and Jesus experience these same temptations. But it gets deeper than that. (laughs) And this is amazing because Satan comes to Jesus with each of these, okay? And Jesus responds to each of these temptations. But he doesn't just respond like, here's my response. No, no, no. He quotes from the Old Testament in his response to Satan. But he doesn't just quote from anywhere in the Old Testament. He quotes from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And not just anywhere in Deuteronomy. He quotes from Deuteronomy right after Israel failed the tests. Moses has this kind of post-game interview after they failed and says, well, this is how we lost. We should have done this, we should have done that, and we should have done this. Jesus quotes what Moses says they should have done back to Satan. In other words, what Israel failed to learn, I have learned. I know. And so even Jesus in his responses is tying himself to Israel in this very intimate sort of way. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that cool? The Bible is so, so cool. Uh, Satan in the first temptation goes right after this connection with, with uh, Israel. 
He goes right after it. He's like, it doesn't seem like it at first. So you got to follow with me here a little bit. But he says, okay, so you're, you're the, the son of God. That's fantastic. Um, and you're also walking around in the wilderness here and you're hungry. So Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days. I mean, I go four hours and I'm already making moral compromises to get a sandwich, you know? Jesus has been out here for 40 days and he's starving. And Satan comes and says, dude, you are the son of God. You have messianic powers and you're hungry and you're surrounded by rocks. Turn the rocks into food. <laughs> it's a good idea. Uh, as Brian Zahn says, Satan always tempts us with really good ideas. <laughs> That's a good idea. Just turn the rocks into food. You're the Messiah, you're walking around hungry, and you've got this potential all-you-can-eat buffet of double cheeseburgers. You know? But Jesus says no. Uh, because what's happening here is, remember, Jesus is the new Israel. He's trying to be with us. Not just present with us, but be with us in this very real, tangible, he is one of us. That's what Emmanuel means. And, um, and Satan is trying to nudge Jesus to use his messianic powers in selfish ways that the Israelites couldn't do. The Israelites, when they were hungry in the desert, they couldn't turn the rocks into food. And so Jesus isn't going to either because he's identified, that's the whole point, he's identifying with Israel. And so if he cheats, then he blows up the whole thing and he is no longer Emmanuel. He is no longer with us in the way that he needs to be. But Satan also knows Jesus' overall plan, and that is that Jesus is here to redeem humanity and to heal humanity, and at the very least, to feed humanity. And, and there's hunger everywhere, and there's rocks everywhere. So maybe Jesus could just turn all the rocks into food, and then hunger is solved, and Jesus wants hunger to be solved. And, and so this is a good idea. But and we know that Jesus wants hunger to be solved because just two chapters later, he feeds the 5,000. And, and he wants hunger to be solved. But the problem, though, is that what Jesus wants more than hunger to be solved is that the reason why we have hunger needs to be solved. Uh, it's not that we have plenty of food. That's what Jesus is saying. Look, we've got plenty of food. We have an abundance of rocks, in particular, rock hearts. We have too many stone hearts. That's the problem that's causing the uh, hunger. Man does not live on bread alone, Jesus says, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What are those words? Love one another. Have compassion for one another. Love the oppressed. Take care of the fatherless. Take care of the widow. Share what you have. That, if we did that, we wouldn't have hunger. That's the, that's the point. Um, this isn't Hey, this isn't a, a, a spiritualization of, of social justice or anything like that because uh, Jesus wants his people fed. Jesus wants his people taken care of. This isn't, okay, I'm going to focus on a charitable heart and then once I get my charitable heart perfected, then I'll go and help people. No, no, no. Helping people is how you get your charitable heart perfected. <laughs> that's how it happens. That's the only way it happens. And, and that's what Jesus is calling us to. Now, this test is... is designed specifically for Jesus. And, uh, but we can take some things away from it for ourselves. Uh, the first question is to ask yourself, am I allowing my cravings uh, to get in the way of what God wants for me? Am I allowing the things that I crave to sabotage God's will for me? And man, we have a lot of things as humans that we crave. And, and a lot of it is just good stuff, you know, like financial security. Um, 
Uh, let's see, what, you probably hear this like every two weeks there's an article like this. Financial planners now say that the average couple needs $4.2 million to retire comfortably. <laughs> Have you ever seen these? It's like every, every two weeks, it's just the number just keeps creeping up. And, um, and that's great. I hope you're planning for retirement. I'm not, but I hope you are <laughs> because I'm sure that's a good thing. But do you see how that also forces us to focus on ourselves. Do I have enough? How much do I have? Okay, I need to, how am I going to make more? Okay, now I'm going to have to get this job, I'm going to have to do that, and I'm, suddenly I'm self-oriented, and that's what these cravings of the world do. Or maybe convenience. Maybe I want things to be easy. I want, and so I start to get more devices to make my life easier, and pretty soon, a lot of people I know, they can't even park in the garage. They have so many devices to make their lives easier. Isn't that weird? I just read an article this week that Google had an event in Europe, and 147 celebrities went to this event in their private planes and on their private yachts. And the event that Google was holding was for global warming. (laughs) And I'm just like, I'm sure that's convenient to take the plane, but uh, I don't know. It's just maybe convenience is uh, too important to us. Um, Or sex. That's a cra- that doesn't cause any problems, though, does it? Nah. <laughs> no, of course it does. It ruins lives. It ruins marriages. Um, and, and it can be a big problem. Or how about this one? Sugar. <laughs> uh, that's me. I, oh, man, I love sugar. I'm, I'm at the party over by the carrot sticks and the peanut M&Ms. I'm not eating the carrot sticks, right? <laughs> Just to let you know. You help yourself to those. That's all available. Um, And it's not like any of these things are bad. Pleasure is not the enemy. The church historically has made a mistake of thinking that pleasure is the enemy, and that's wrong. But the modern church a lot of times has made pleasure the hero, (laughs) and and, and taste and and quality and convenience and all these things become sort of like the hero in our lives, and that's wrong too. What, What God wants for us is not to make pleasure or convenience or money the enemy or the hero, but to just have self-control. That's the, that's the goal that God has for us. And we all have power uh, to have finances and pleasure and all these things. And so the question is, is how am I using my power? Am I using my power for what God wants me to use it for? Or am I only using it for selfish reasons? Um, which is not to say you can't do anything for yourself. Of course you can. But are, am I only doing that? That's where it becomes problematic. Um, the second role that Jesus fulfills in this story is the role of Adam and Eve. And you might ask, um, why is Jesus going through all of this? Why does he want to be Emmanuel and God with us in this very intimate way? I mean, why become human and have to deal with hunger and pain and suffering? And eventually he's going to end up being flogged and crucified. Why even go through all of that? The answer comes back to Adam and Eve. Um, Adam and Eve, if you remember, sort of represented us. They were the first covenant that God had with humanity, and they blew it. (laughs) God created humanity and the context for humanity just the way that God wanted it, and, uh, and it was good. And Adam and Eve rejected it. And so God gave them over to the ungodliness that they have accepted instead. And that's what we're all born into. Now, you may be thinking, um, like I have, doesn't it seem unfair that we're born into this world that those bozos several thousand years ago created? Doesn't that seem unfair to you? Like, 
Why am I born into a world where little kids get cancer? Man, that sucks. I didn't choose to be here. Why am I born into a world where parents choose alcohol over their family? Man, that's, that's not fair. That's not right. Now, some theologies will say, well, that's the way that God wanted it, and that's, that's part of something, and God's bigger and stuff like that. I don't think that's the case. I think that that intuition that we have that this is not fair, that's the perspective of God. You look at the Old Testament multiple times. He, he, uh, he wished that he didn't make, he regretted making humanity, it says. And over and over and over again, he expected Israel to do this good thing, but instead they did that. And I think that he looks at the world and he says, it's not fair. And there's a lot of reasons why he allows it. Hey there. There's a lot of reason why God allows it, but um, I can't get into those right now. But what I can say is this. Jesus, in becoming the new Adam and Eve, this is God's plan to reverse all of that. This is God's plan to reverse Adam and Eve. <clears throat> Where was I? <laughs> So uh, in Jesus becoming Adam and Eve, this is God's plan to reverse all that. Those feelings like it's not fair, this is God's response. This will ultimately... In fact, what happens is um, in the same way that, that Adam and Eve represented us and we all experienced the curses of their choice because they failed covenant, in the same way because Jesus represents us as the new Adam and Eve, we will all experience the blessings of his faithfulness. And more than that, the Bible says that uh, the, the blessings that we will receive, the Apostle Paul says, are so much better that they sort of trivialize the sufferings that we experience now today, which better be pretty good because the sufferings here are pretty bad. And that sounds like really good news, that somehow God is going to bless us so much that it will trivialize the sufferings. And that is good news, but it's not good news unless it's true. Okay? And, and as Christians, we believe and we have faith that it is true. Um, but none of that works unless Jesus is fully one of us. Because if you think about it, let's say Jesus came down as a chicken. <laughs> okay? It's just like a chicken. Jesus, Jesus, come back here. I'm talking about you. Come here. Okay, thanks. Okay, Jesus is a little chicken. All right? And then God has a covenant with, with Jesus. Well, God in that case is covenanting with chickens, not with humans right? And so in order for God to covenant with humanity, the covenant per, uh, figurehead, the leader of the people that represents us, has to be human as well. Uh, and so Jesus has to be fully human. He can't be fully God who just looks like a human because then God's just covenanting with himself, you know? It's just a big charade. And so Jesus has to be fully human, and this is what Hebrews tells us. God was made human in every possible way, flesh and blood, and even to the extent that he suffered during his temptations, Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. And so in the baptism story, what we have is Jesus officially and formally uh, announcing himself as our figurehead, as our new Adam and Eve, to fulfill all righteousness. John sees Jesus and he says, what are you doing here? You should be baptizing me. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am fully human. I need to be baptized. And this fulfills all righteousness. And this formally and officially, he is announcing his role as our new Adam and Eve. He goes into the water and he emerges and the skies open up and a dove descends down under the water, just like Noah. 
This dove descends down, and then this voice says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. God formally and officially accepts Jesus as our representative. Um, and so the covenant begins. And it's no coincidence that, in, that Jesus uh, is attacked on this right away. The first thing Satan utters when he sees Jesus is about this, that, oh, you're the son of God. That's the voice you heard, huh? Did God really say that? Does that sound familiar? Just like Adam and Eve. Did God really say that? If, if you're really the son of God, then you could turn these rocks into food. Um, or if you're really the son of God, here in the second temptation, then you should prove that you're the son of God. <laughs> I mean, don't you want your people to really know that you're the son of God? Don't you want to prove it to them? They want, you want them to know, right? Okay, I have a plan. We'll get, check this out, okay? Here's what we're going to do to prove that you're who you say you are. I'm going to bring you to Jerusalem to the temple. It's the busiest place. There's the most people there at the temple of anywhere. And so I'm going to bring you there to the temple, and I'm going to bring you to the tippy, tippy, tippy top of the temple. And here's what you're going to do, okay? You're going to jump off the tippy, tippy top and plummet down toward the stone. Because... Psalm tells us that God will not allow his child to even injure his toe on a stone. And so God's angels will catch you in front of the entire crowd and they will know that you are who you say you are. Isn't that a good idea? That's a good idea. Satan always tempts us with good ideas. Because don't, don't you want to know for sure? Wouldn't it be nice when you were doubting if Jesus just appeared and said, stop doubting, I'm right here, duh. You know, or uh, maybe there's like a ball of fire that started talking to you and convinced you of the truth of it. Um, that would be nice. Um, but that's not how we experience things. Jesus responded to Satan by saying, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And here's what that means. Um, because we get it into our head that, you know, if only God were more obvious, you know, if only God were more obvious, then, man, my faith would be supercharged. If I got to experience what the Apostle Paul experienced, where he was just knocked off his horse by glowing Jesus, man, I would have a supercharged faith, you know? Once I know that God really is the way Jesus says he is, and once I know for sure that all of the promises that God has for me are true, if I really know that, then I will start to go through the painful work of changing my life, of changing my character, of reorienting everything towards this godly vision. That's how we think. We, we really think that certainty will compel obedience. Um, but uh, we only have one life. And we tell ourselves that until I really know for sure, uh, I, I have to go on living the way I want to live. And, um, and so what happens is we set up certainty as the obstacle that God has to go over before we start to obey. And uh, that doesn't work. <laughs> We've seen that that doesn't work. Um, but it does, one thing it does is it, it puts a barrier up to our own growth. Because, man changing your character and becoming more Christ-like, that's hard and it hurts. And you have to let go of things that are pleasurable and you have to make tough choices. And if, if the only thing standing between me and that pain is certainty, I am going to be the best skeptic in the world. <laughs> I'm going to be so good at finding reasons to doubt 
And that's exactly what we see. We just keep finding reasons to doubt. Um, we, we think that certainty is going to make us obey. We, we tell God that you have to earn my allegiance. You have to cross this bar. Uh, but, and God wants to earn our allegiance. But the thing is, is he sort of already has. <laughs> He's already earned our allegiance. Our job, the Bible says, is to seek God and to find that he already has earned our allegiance. We're told over and over and over again to seek God. Seek God, seek God, seek God. We're told so many times because he's not obvious. That's the whole point. Seek God like a treasure, it says, and he will be found by you. Um, yeah, God wants to be more obvious, but thanks, Adam and Eve, reality's not the way that God wants it. And so uh, God has earned our allegiance, but we have to seek that out. We have a tendency to put our demand for certainty before obedience and faithfulness. Um, But we've seen over and over and over again that that doesn't work. We see in Exodus, remember in Exodus where they escaped through the sea, this miraculous thing. I mean, imagine if you were at Lake Minnetonka, let's say, and um, you were late for a meeting on the other side. I think it's Chanhassen over there. And you're late for a meeting and you say, God, I'm late for this meeting. Could you help me out? All of a sudden, Lake Minnetonka starts rumbling and the waters start parting and there's this straight shot right to the coffee shop. And you can see it glowing over there on the other end. And wow, this is amazing. And you kind of step out and you're like, okay, yeah, all right. And you're moving and the water is closing behind you. And you get all the way to the other side and the water closes and there's your friend waiting, Okay. And your friend is an atheist, let's say. And uh, your friend gives you some argument like, how can you believe that humans are so important? Look how big the universe is. And you think about that for a minute and you're like, yeah, you're right. There's no God. Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking that there was a God. That's pretty absurd, isn't it? After passing through Lake Minnetonka, (laughs) 20 minutes later, you're like, yeah, there's no God because of one dumb argument. This is exactly what happens to the Israelites. Days after they escape through Exodus, they're building idols for other gods. We see this with Peter as well. Peter watched all of the miracles of Jesus. He saw the healings. He saw the raising of the dead. He saw the feeding. He walked on water with Jesus. <laughs> and then when Jesus was arrested and the guards come, Peter's like, I don't know that guy. I've never seen him before in my life. Not me. I don't know. Whatever. And just like that, uh, certainty does not compel obedience and faithfulness. It may give us a little boost for a while, but we always want another hit of it eventually. What Jesus does is he blows the whole thing up. He inverts the whole thing. He says, I know that you want assuredness, okay? That's what you want, and I'm going to give you assuredness. And he tells this to his disciples in John 7, 17. He says to them, do you want to know if I am who I say I am or just some guy with good speaking skills and magic tricks? Do you really want to know if I am who I say I am? And the disciples are like, uh, duh, yeah. And they're leaning in with their notepad because he's going to give his argument. This is how you can know if I am who I say I am. Keep the commands. Ah, keep the commands. Somehow what Jesus does is he puts the assuredness that we want. We want this assuredness. He has buried it somehow in obedience. Somehow, I don't know how, but by obeying his commands, the assuredness arises out of that. We can't be sure first and then start to obey. That doesn't work. We have to obey and then assuredness grows out of that. Um, 
when you live out of obedience first, you live out of the belief that you already have, the things that you already believe, the love that you already feel, the light that you already experience. And as you live in that, that grows. But when you put a demand for certainty first, you're forever a hostage to doubts. And there are so many doubts. And there are so many reasons to doubt. So the question to pull from all of this is, am I living out of my demand for certainty or am I living out of my obedience? Ha-ha! Oh, shoot. I thought, I thought I would catch you, but you're too fast. Um, okay, the third and final one, Jesus is our new David. Uh, David, of course, was the greatest king of Israel, and uh, uh, Jesus is going to be the new king of Israel, and he is going to be the new and successful David, which is just amazing by itself, because if you remember, the whole role of king was sort of this rejection of God. Remember that in 1 Samuel 8, the people wanted a king, and Samuel's like, no, 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 God is our king, and no, 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 we want a king, but no, but God is our king. And finally, God says, Samuel, just let him have, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. This whole idea of a king is a rejection of God. But even that, God is going to redeem and turn into this beautiful thing. Um, And so scholars agree that the primary role of a king is to establish who the threats to the kingdom are. That's the most important role. Who are the threats to the kingdom? Who is the enemy that we have to rally against? That's the most important role of a king. And what we find here, even here in this, this temptation story, is Jesus taking his king role seriously and establishing Satan as our true enemy. Uh, Satan, our king tells us, is the enemy. And the principalities and powers that Satan sustains, that's our true enemy. In fact, even to the extent that the Apostle John in uh, 1 John 3, 8, he says the whole reason Jesus came wasn't, it wasn't to make us feel bad about our sins. It wasn't to uh, show how terrible people are. The whole reason Jesus came, John tells us, is to destroy the works of the devil. Because, why? Because that is who our enemy is. That's the threat. Um, the Apostle Paul infers from this in Ephesians 6, 8, our enemy is not flesh and blood. In other words, stop fighting each other. <laughs> stop fighting each other. Our enemy are the principalities and powers that Satan sustains, not flesh and blood. This is why our king's commands, which seem very silly, actually make a lot of sense. If somebody strikes you in the face, turn the other cheek. That's a strange command. But if they're not our enemy and they're doing that, they must be confused because they obviously think that I'm their enemy. They're delusional. If someone comes over to your house and starts kicking over the flower pots, you're going to be upset by this. But when you find out that they're maybe schizophrenic and they think that the flower pots are demons and the demons are trying to get into your house to kill you, well, now suddenly you're going to think differently of this person. They're delusional, they don't know any better. In the same way, this person who has struck you thinks you're their enemy and they are delusional because flesh and blood are not our enemies. Um, We can love our supposed earthly enemies because they are not our enemies. And uh, this is why Jesus says, you can tell a person who is in my kingdom because they love people with this radical enemy embracing love in Matthew 5.45. Jesus emerges from the testing in the wilderness and his first utterance when he emerges is, The kingdom of God has come near because the king is here. Um, And the third temptation or the third test goes right after this kingship uh, claim. 
Satan says to him, he says, okay, you want to be the king of the world. That's great. That's, that's precious. Um, how about this? How about if I just give you all of the kingdoms of the world? You can have them. <laughs> you can have all the kingdoms. You want to be king, you can have them. And if you're like me, you're thinking, well, that was easy. <laughs> that's what Jesus wants is to be the king over everything. Maybe, maybe Satan has turned over a new leaf, you know? Uh, you can have all of the kingdoms of the world, Jesus, if. Ah, shoot, there's that word, if. It's such a small word, <laughs> but it's also so big. You can have all the kingdoms of the world if you serve me. Um, and Jesus says, no. No way! Get away from me, Satan, for the Bible tells us to serve God only. See, uh, serving Satan is a conflict of representation. Jesus is here as our new Adam and Eve to represent us in covenant with God. And um, if, if Jesus is serving Satan, he's going to represent Satan. Because the secret here is that we don't represent the people we have power over. We represent the people we serve. That's who we really represent. And you can see this, too, in, in politics. You see people, a politician who is uh, uh, voted into office by their constituents, and you see these politicians serving the people that voted them in. And then sometimes you see politicians who serve other organizations that aren't the people that voted them in. And that's how you know who they are representing, is who they are serving. Um, Jesus came to represent humanity. He calls us to be his hands and feet. And so therefore, he calls us to represent humanity and to serve humanity. But in particular, he calls us to serve the oppressed and the powerless and the homeless and the fatherless and the widow and the outcasts and the refugees and the rejects. Um, and we want to do that. I really believe we do. I believe that we want to do that. But things get in the way. And there's a lot of stuff that gets in the way. But one thing that gets in the way is this temptation right here, and that's this desire for personal greatness. And we want to be personally great. And so um, these types of people that Jesus wants, to hang, wants me to hang around with, you know, they, they kind of drag me down. <laughs> you know, uh, they kind of go against my goal. And I, I start to buy into these principles like um, winners hang around with winners. That's how you become a winner. Uh, or um, you are the product of the people you surround yourself with or surround yourself with positive people and these are the things that we start to buy into and there's something okay about those because you know um, we are influenced by the people that we surround ourselves with that's true and we should avoid sin um, and if I want to learn a new skill I have to find the right people who have the skill that I want to learn but notice also how these types of greatness principles also kind of nudge us away from who God wants us to be with because God wants us to be with the losers, the lowlifes, the rejects, and all of these greatness principles just kind of nudge me away from them. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so some questions that we can pull from this. Uh, which king are you taking orders from? Who do you represent? Who are you serving? God calls us to be his hands and feet and he's here to serve humanity. How are you doing? I'm not doing that good. <laughs> I'm not serving the people God wants me to serve. Um, uh, but that's what I want to do. And that's what I'm orienting myself to. And there's a lot of barriers to serving those people. Do you ever notice that? It's hard to have a relationship with a homeless person. It's hard. It seems superficial. It's, 
Um, uh, there's a lot of resistance to it. There's a lot of uh, white savior complex stuff. And there's all sorts of psychological, psychological things that get in the way of that. But that's what we're called to do. And so uh, we're called to orient ourselves to that. Not that it's easy, but the things that we cogitate about and strategize should be about overcoming those barriers. Instead, we cogitate in a different direction. Boy, that guy seems like he's really successful. How can I get to know him better? Maybe I can invite him over and see how we're strategizing and planning on how we can get close to those people and we're getting farther away from those people. And it's not easy, but that's what we should be chewing on. That's what we should be devoting ourselves to. And um, uh, that's my hope for myself and for us. Um, What keeps you from serving the people that God wants you to serve? These are things to think about. Um, This series uh, is on covenant and kingdom. Covenant being relationship and kingdom being about responsibility. Uh, And we see Jesus in fulfilling these roles kind of kind of do a major thing in both of those categories. Uh, we see him becoming the new Adam and Eve to establish successful relationship between humanity and God. Um, and so that's the covenant side. But we also see Jesus being the new king. And, and he uh, tells us who our enemy is. And so he tells us what our responsibility is. Our responsibility is to fight against Satan and stop fighting against other people. Serve other people. Fight against the principalities and powers. Um, And and so that's the responsibility part of it. In fact, in the next chapter, in chapter 5 of Matthew, his first teaching after the testing in the wilderness is the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, which is sort of like the constitution in the kingdom of God. This is how you live in the kingdom of God. This is how you are responsible in the kingdom of God. And so we see all of those things. We see Jesus, even in this short snippet, and I had to cut out the Moses piece and the Abraham piece and the Isaac piece. But even these three things, isn't that amazing? In just this little short snippet of Bible story, um, I'm wowed by it. personally. So uh, thank you so much for your attention. I would like to ask the, the prayer team to come forward. If you have any prayer requests or if you would like to start a journey in God's kingdom, uh, I encourage you to come forward and to meet with the prayer team about that. Thanks, everybody. Have a blessed week, and I will see you next week.